Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday the 30th of the 7th. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. Thank you very much. So, today, the Catherine Zappone issue is rapidly becoming more of an issue for the government after an just incredibly inept attempts to defuse the situation. We have the Bosnian situation. Bosnia, I'm sure everyone is delighted to know, is having a... Uh, should we say, frank discussion about genocide due to the actions of a UN high representative. Just to start with, a small story, and it doesn't immediately relate to Ireland, but it's more one to be aware of because of the potential it will spread to Ireland. This is about PayPal, Michael. I don't know if you've heard this because I haven't heard it, seen it reported anywhere outside America. But PayPal, who is the, the payment processor, has decided that they are going to partner with the ADL, which is the Anti-Defamation League. It's a, a Jewish human rights org, anti-extremism. And it's got a long history. There are many people with very strong views on the ADL from all sides. But PayPal has announced it's, it's starting a new initiative to fight extremism and hate through the financial industry. And as part of that, what they are going to do is PayPal are going to give the ADL access to uh, transaction history. So anyone who has used PayPal, any customer of, of PayPal, anyone who's bought anything with it, in America, the ADL is going to get access to their transaction history, all the payments they've made or received through PayPal. That seems to me like an oddly short-sighted decision. I, I was first slightly surprised they chose the ADL. I thought if they're really going to go full bore on this, so they've gone with something like, say, the Southern Poverty Law Centre, which has, a, I would have said, a wider scope for looking at extremist groups. Although I would also say the Southern Poverty Law Centre's reputation has maybe declined in recent years and the ADL is still seen maybe as still sticking more to its core mission. Not to say, as you said, that there aren't people who have opinions about it. And I speak here from the comfortable and pure situation of ignorance. GDPR, Gary, we have spent, God knows, listening to people talk, I can't do that because of GDPR. And we know that when you there are lots there are websites in the United States that you click on, you can't get in there because of GDPR issues. They they're they're not compliant with the European regulations, so they they're they're not present here. How's that gonna work in Europe? And what does that work like if a European person buys something from a, a vendor in the United States? I, I, how is this going to? How is this going to? Are they are they going to have just sort of Chinese firewalls with within PayPal that only Americans buying in America are touched by this? Or and there, I think there are two issues with this. One, this is on a an area of interest in the West. That being the far right and, and hate, online hate. And two, under GDPR, research has a privileged position. So there are cutouts for research that are not there for a standard business. So they will class this as research. Now, I don't know enough about the GDPR to know how much leeway that will give them. But I think it's it would be premature to simply say that GDPR would stop something like this or would impinge upon it. You may well be right, but the the reason I'm just wondering about this is because we had a conversation, I don't know if we we, we mentioned it, but I, where um, a year and a half ago, I, I, I talking to a lawyer on a subject not that far away from this, and I, 
and because I, I don't understand the, the, the ins and outs of GDPR, what you can hold and what you can't and how it has to be held and who, what the regulations are. I said, well, what about in the research? Is, is there any, and he, he was of the opinion, and again, it was only one man's opinion, that it, it is tight and technical. GDPR is there, there are the words he used, this is tight and technical. And you would have to be looking at a very neutral form of research for it to be protected under that. Tight and technical laws are, would be problematic for something like this, because this has to involve a third party making what are ultimately going to be subjective decisions about what is the nature of extremist or problematic or far right or whatever, you know. But just in principle, it seems to me to be a bad thing anyway. The ultimate objective of this sort of research is to create systems that will enable you to restrict flows and money flows to organizations which you deem to be unacceptable. Now, they will create this on the basis of the far right. But once that exists, once you have a technology or an algorithm that can do that, and it has become accepted practice, there's no need for it to remain restricted to the far right. It could, in fact, go to any group. And we've seen things like PayPal having issues with, let's say, sex workers before. So they'll probably also end up being caught in something like this. Yeah. My concern with it is there are certain pillars of modern society, things that should not be political and should not be used for political purposes, even if doing so would appear on the surface to be a good thing, because they are so important to modern life that their politicization will have far-reaching consequences that will be broadly negative. And finance and banking is one of those. I've had a problem with a long time with things like Visa and MasterCard and, and those sort of financial institutions deciding that they're not going to allow payment to certain places or certain people, sometimes because of their political views, sometimes because of their work. It's just not a thing you want to happen, because once it starts happening, once it becomes normalised, well, you don't know where that's going to end up. And if you have a situation where if you have certain political views, you just can't bank or you can't use a credit card or a debit card. Yes. You start. Like, that's not going to end well. It can't. It can't end well because it's 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 a process which is it's not controlled by the state. There is, shall we say, at the very least what you might call a democratic deficit here because there is nobody to whom, there's nobody that is ultimately responsible that, that you have that you have any kind of control over it's not like this is controlled by the state and if you don't like the way the government is doing it then you there are there's a mechanism at least in theory for you to change that government this is extrajudicial so you there are no clear obvious laid down explicit standards by which this is going to be judged you, you can't go to the to a book of statutes for clarity to see which it is you can't go to a court and ask for the for the judges to give clarity on the position or indeed you can't you, you don't have judicial review this is something which is happening outside of the state now our friends who the radical libertarians would say well you know what a private company can do whatever the hell it likes the problem with that is and you've talked about this before is Gary, if you take something like particularly say bank accounts and, and credit cards we're moving towards a state where in the Western world, you are you you effectively can't exist without some kind of a bank account or a credit card, unless you're going to live like Ted was Ted what was it Wazinski? You're going to live off the grid in, in, in a cabin somewhere in Oregon. These things are abs These are basically essential to normal functioning in a developed country in the Western world. And if you get a situation where people are making decisions 
that are outside of the state and outside of judicial review about who is who can have those basic needs taken away and denied that's very problematic as the young people would say how many times have you seen gripped described as far right i mean it's more than two or three it's yeah it's relatively common i've generally found when you ask people for evidence it kind of falls apart pretty quickly uh but you know it's it's one of those things that's said Generally, I think without thinking about it. Yeah, but if you get a group and they they're, they're in the position to make a judgment call like that, and they make a judgment call like that, and there is no system review, uh, a review that you can active properly engage with. I mean, we've all seen people or known people, or if you you yourself have been maybe involved in it, where you've been trying to deal with a group, say whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Wikipedia, and you're trying to get something overturned. It it's like going into the the maze, uh, the Minotaur's maze. I mean, you don't know where you're going. You don't know the. You don't know what question you're supposed to ask. You don't know what evidence you're supposed to supply. You you just know you're in their land, and they can just keep saying no. It breaches community guidelines, and that's all they keep. That's all they have to say, because they know what it means. You don't know what it means, but they don't have to explain to you. So. PayPal are doing this in conjunction with the ADL. What do you say? Well, you know what? This is the usual paranoid, scaremongering that we hear from people on the right. It, this is simply a research project. The idea that we're going to just vastly expand this and start to include perfectly innocuous groups from the moderate, conservative right is nonsense. Why would we do that? We're a business. We're not in the business of alienating anybody. We're just trying to do something reasonable and good here. For God's sake, stop taking the crazy pills. Was that a question? Yeah. What do you say? It, yeah, I can imagine that that's the question that they would ask you. Why, why are you so concerned? This is or rather not the question, but the statement they would say. There's no need to be concerned. These are we we are we're a business. We're not in the business of alienating people or losing customers. The ADL is a highly respectable, reputable. Uh, organization. We're only doing this for the purposes of research. This is just scaremongering and nonsense. Firstly, I would point out that I'm not generally of the view that we should assume that large multinational corporations with basically no public oversight are going to act in the public interest. That seems slightly naive to me. I would also add that they may not actually indeed necessarily act in their own interests in the broad business sense because they may make a mistake about what their, where their interests lie. Or they may be captured by ideology. I mean, this does happen. It has happened. Corporations and organizations do get captured and move in a direction that doesn't act. If, if, if you consider the bottom line of your accounts to be the most important thing, they may actually act in a way which is not in, in, that, in that interest. I mean, even if they think they are, they may not. Let's look, Coke decided to change Coke's recipe, and I'm sure they did so because they thought that would be good for Coke. The other point I'd make is, once this is done, and it exists, it's not going to be purely something that can only be done to the far-right or hate groups. It will be able to do to be done to any identifiable political, ethnic, religious, any subculture or minority that you can define. And if you can do it that way, is that really a technology you want floating around the place that can probably be applied without anyone affected knowing that it's being applied to them. Mm -hmm. It would be nearly impossible to actually tell what was being done unless PayPal were kind enough 
to tell you what was being done. So yes, it could be created and nothing could happen with it. It could be simply used as a pure research tool. But I think it's generally better to raise a concern with something when it's in development rather than waiting until it's completed and assuming it's going to be fine. Because it's a lot easier to prod something slightly when it's being worked on rather than try and have it change when it's completed. Also, is there something here which is just a bit disquieting in that this isn't on the face of it, as I understand it, and I may well be wrong, about uncovering activity connected to groups that are engaged in illegal activity. No, they're saying extremist, anti-government organization, and then they say actors and networks spreading and profiting from all forms of hate and bigotry against any community. And Michael, that sounds like a lovely objective, but it's not the purpose of PayPal. And it shouldn't be the purpose of PayPal. It shouldn't be something they should be let do. Also, to say something rather simplistic, certainly in the context of the United States, it's not a crime to be anti-government. may not even be an immoral thing to be anti-government. In America, it's not a crime to be you know, racist or to be filled with hatred or anything of that nature. It's almost as if they've decided that there is a lacuna in the United States where they can punish, where the, the state can act for where, in those areas where people are doing things which are illegal. But there are things which people should be punished for which are not illegal. Since the state can't act there, they're going to act in the stead of the state. I think that, that is an important point. This is a private company targeting activities which, while perhaps distasteful and in some cases immoral, are perfectly legal in the country in which they are operating, but which they, using their own internal standards, will determine on a case-by-case basis to be problematic and not something they want on their network. Now, that's fine with certain companies. I don't think if a cake shop doesn't want to sell you a cake, it's really a big impingement on your life. Sure. At the point you start dealing with PayPal, Visa, those kind of companies, they are of such a scale and so integral to more modern life. That is a bit of an issue. That is a concern that they would be able to do that on scale and probably automatically. I think that's a fair, that's a, that's a, more, that's a fair point. Although I suppose there is an amusing question there of you know, what groups is it acceptable for them to do this to before it becomes an issue? Uh, well, yeah, uh, the problem is, of course, that these things tend to happen incrementally, don't they? And therefore, it will probably be difficult to see where the line will be drawn. The first place it will expand to from the far right will actually be pornography, because a lot of the finance companies have surprising problems with it. I'm not quite sure why. I don't think it's any sort of ethical thing, but they have been surprisingly quick to ban people involved in... in uh, sex work from their platform. So that's where it'll go immediately. So you'll go from, yay, it's it's hurt the far right, to, oh god, no, it's done this to sex workers, that's terrible. And then from there, they'll just go wherever they want. And as long as they keep picking small minority groups, it's not really going to hurt them. It's kind of the inverse form of public choice theory. As long as you keep, rather than public, the, the small groups having disproportionate influence on public policy, this is the other way around, where if you attack small disparate groups, most people won't care because, well, it's nothing to do with me. What happens when this technology spreads to companies in, let's say, Iran, and they decide that (laughs) anything that goes towards anything that might be a bit queer, Michael, they just won't do it. Yeah, You just don't get to do that in uh, Iran. If you're queer, you just don't get to bank, or you don't get to do all of these things. 
Is, will that be horribly immoral or will that just be a private company you know, siding with its culture? Upholding the values and ethics that are consonant with that particular culture and society. I think I know what the answer will be in that case. I think it will be an offence on European values and, you know, those values of human rights, Michael. But, of course, we will, by that point, have accepted the norm in relation to other people. And then you're really just haggling about price. Yeah, then you're just haggling, yes, exactly. As G- as as Mr. Shaw would have said. So, it's a poem, Mike. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all going a bit pear-shaped. I, I said when we discussed this before and I've been saying to friends yeah it's all very much what it looks like and it's all bad and it's, but you know how can you get that excited about what is just fairly low-key small-scale typical jobs for the girls cronyism but as people have pointed out and I think somebody did somebody quote Albert Reynolds on this I think was it one of the cowns it's the small things that trip you up. I think you said, Gary, that very often the problem with really big projects and really big problems, it's hard for people to get their 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 hands around the edges of the problem. So to get them really going about it, it's it's hard because you can get lost in the details and the size of the thing means that there are always going to be explanations. But this is small and comprehensible and easy and obvious. And it does seem to be causing a bit of a brouhaha. But all sorts of there are all sorts of bits of the brouhaha. There's this Catherine Sabone bit. There's the there's the Coveney bit. There's the Veradker bit. There's the Michal Martin bit, and then there's the whole government bit and the way we do business bit. It 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 has lots of it's like a a chocolate box with all sorts of layers to it. In case you weren't listening to the last episode, you're not aware of the situation. Catherine Sabone has been appointed a uh, government representative. And when we were talking about this on Wednesday, we knew that no one else had been interviewed for it and the position was not in any way advertised. And it went to Cabinet and apparently Michal Martin was not aware of it because Fine Gael handled it. So there is still some ambiguity about whether or not the position was created purely for her or she was simply given it because she said I could do that very well. And then we also found out that you have somewhere in the region of 15,000 in direct remuneration. Then you have pension contributions then Catherine Zappone will be provided with a secretary, and then we have expenses. Aha! This, the expenses, one, one wonders. I mean, we could go, you know, there's standard civil servant level of expenses, but are these the level of expenses that Catherine Zappone will be expected to be held to? Because, you know, there's a lot of stuff, Michael, that an envoy might do that might be unusual or perhaps may not give ample opportunity to collect receipts or things of that nature. Yeah, you're you're going to be talking about fairly extensive foreign travel. There's obviously going to have to be a subsistence grant. There's going to be accommodation, and you can't be sending envoys off and, and putting them in some lower class Airbnb or hostel. Then you may have to schmooze if you want to get your message across. They're going to drinkies here, a dinner there party, a reception, you know, you, again, if you're abroad and you're doing these things on the fly, I mean, you can't go around necessarily collecting invoices and receipts and things. I mean, they may not give you them. These foreign countries, Gary, they don't have the same kinds of standards that we do. Michael, you know the way we constantly say, if you're going to do something in politics, check what you've said about it beforehand? 
And more importantly, check if there is a record of you saying anything. Yeah, that's a bit unfortunate. Yeah, that's advice that Catherine Zappone perhaps should have paid more attention to. Because it started circulating on Twitter that Catherine Zappone had put up a tweet or two where she talked about the need for transparency on government boards. Now, I suppose this is an envoy position, Michael, but I think it's close enough. Yes. So, she puts up these tweets, but she also mentions in these tweets that she is talking in the Shannon about it. So, I I have seen people sharing around the tweets. I haven't seen anyone else sharing around the video, which does exist, because I've got a copy of it. And I imagine <laughs> Gript will have it up probably before this podcast goes live. You know, with a, a nice top and tail, Michael, and then we'll cut to news of her accepting the position and just ask what's happened here. Yeah. But there is a full video of Zapone. There's a full transcript, which I will include a link to. The video is a bit of a pain in the ass to find because it's from 2015 and the doll record, the online archive only goes back to 2016. And yet, Gary, that did not dissuade you from keeping looking. Well, I'm known for many things, Michael, but one of them is my persistence. Yeah, absolutely. I'm told I'm very unpleasant to deal with because I'm just constantly there. I can confirm that. So here's what Zapone said. The practice of appointments made with nod and a wink to state boards has no place in our open modern democracy and could damage our economic recovery. We are all in agreement that it is time to put an end to the parish pump system of appointments once and for all, and to ensure that the agencies of the state have boards with experience, talent and skills to guide them in the delivery of services to the people. And we applaud and agree. Yes, but given the current circumstances... You probably should have checked if you're on, you know, video talking about these things. Well, like you say, Gary, it's not actually a government board. And I suppose Carson would say that we're talking about somebody who is self-evidently possessed of all of the qualities that she referred to necessary to do the job and to provide the service to the people. We had a very awkward uh, press conference where Michal Martin was asked about this and simply started saying, now it's time to move on while Irish reporters refused to let him move on. An important thing about this story, which I don't think anyone has mentioned, is we are now in silly season. And for those who aren't aware, silly season is the period of the year where the doll is on recess. And because of that, there's much less news, which means journalists and reporters are willing to, like they're desperate for stories. You're just staring at a wall waiting for stories. So stuff that would never get into the papers when there's actual content to write about can become massive stories during silly season. And the government decided in the last couple of days they had before silly season to create a scandal, nearly guaranteeing that the Zappone story will be reported on for the next couple of weeks. Which is fantastic timing, I must say. I'm still puzzled by one, well, we'll say one aspect for the sake of this. Michal Martin is now being widely reported uh, as complaining that he wasn't on board with this because he hadn't been told about it. and He was blindsided and he, ag- he, he agreed, right? Now, if this is true, that you've been blindsided, uh, I'm sort of reiterating what I said before, but uh, for clarity, if that's true, well, then that begs the question, why didn't you just say no? No, we can't do it like this. That doesn't mean you can't appoint her, but we have to look at this and we have to discuss it. And there has to be some process by which we come to a decision that, yes, this is a qualified person. This is the person we're giving it to if you want to give it to her. But why don't you just say no? Or 
if you're going to say yes, why don't you just shut up about it? Why go around telling people that you were blindsided but said no? Because all that does is make you look weak and ineffectual. Surely for him, the better thing is, once he has been blindsided, is just shut up about it, say nothing, and just let, let, it, let it appear that this was a, uh, something that came to cabinet, we all agreed on, and it's no big deal. I, I don't understand why he would have done this. No, it would appear he could have easily shot this down. He's the Taoiseach. Yes, he's propped up by Fine Gael. But Fine Gael are not going to bring down the government over Catherine's opponent. Yeah, I mean, they keep telling us it's such a small penis kind of thing. It's 15 grand a year and, and the secretary. So what are you talking about? They're not going to bring the government down over that. Now, I will. I knew. And that this is one of the reasons why I thought 15,000 was a bad number for this. Because if you go to the average person and ask them, how would your life be if you had an additional 15,000 euro? Yeah. It's very easy to imagine, you know, all the things you can do with 15,000 euro. But it also, it's low enough. That's the temptation for a politician is to say... It's not a large amount of money, which combines with the fact to most people, it's a substantial amount of money. Like it's not change your life money to most people, but it's a like, it's a comfortable increase in living standards. And so we had Emer Higgins from Fine Gael come out and on TV say it's not that much money. It's not a good thing. But you see, the funny thing is, Gary, you say it's not change your life money because, in the sense that normally when we say that, what we're talking about is somebody who, won, who wins the Euro millions or wins 10 million on the lottery. Oh my God, that'll change your life. And I understand that. But in, in another way, this actually, for an awful lot of people, is change your life money. That if, you're, if you take somebody who's struggling by on the, on the median income uh, or the average industrial wage, and you're going to say, okay, we're going to give you a, a pay rise of 15,000. That would actually change their lives. It would make their lives incredibly easier as regards simply making sure that at the end, of, they would have that comfort of knowing that at the end of the month, every bill would be paid and they would have a couple of quid left over. And we know that, that isn't that when, all, when people do all those quality of life and happiness surveys, that actually it's reaching the amount of money where you don't have to worry about bills is what makes for contentment and actually the money that you have after that makes increasingly less and less difference to the level of happiness or contentment that you report about your life so in a way in a way i'm just saying that, that 15 grand for a lot of people would change their lives it would change the the quality of their experience of just day-to-day -day living and somebody saying ah fifteen thousand, what is it really does make them feel disconnected in a way, which is, of course, feeding into the perception that a lot of people have about politicians, which is that they are, in fact, disconnected from the reality of most people's everyday lives. But instead, they've just sort of uh, gone in a bizarre direction. You were saying about Martin appearing weak. Here's a headline in The Independent. Yeah. He doesn't get mad and he doesn't get even. Before Zappon, five other times, Fine Gael walked all over the Taoiseach. Yeah, that's not a headline you want to read if you're, uh, if you're, if you're Michal Martin, or indeed if you're a member of Fianna Fáil. And here's just a couple of lines from the piece itself. He doesn't get angry, but then, say his backbencher critics in Fianna Fáil, and, and many of the grassroots, he doesn't bother to get even afterwards. And they see the doormat effect as one reason why party support is hemorrhaging all over the country, slumping to less than 5% in the recent Dublin-based South by-election. You can be many things in politics. You can be corrupt. You can be malevolent. And you'll still get votes. 
but you can't be weak. No, weak and ineffectual, this is lethal for the voter, especially if you happen to be leader of a political party, shall we say, a, a once great political party whose leaders were not known for their inability to get even. So we have, on one hand, we have a press desperate for stories. We have a Taoiseach who appears to be being undermined by the other members of the cabinet. We have a leader of Fine Gael who pretty quickly threw Simon Coveney under a bus by saying that uh, it was Leo who told people that Zapone got the position because she went to Simon Coveney and asked for the position. Yeah. Something in which I assume Simon Coveney is deeply grateful to Leo for. Well, let's not forget that in the competition for the leader of Fine Gael, it was Leo against Simon Coveney. And still to this day, that if Leo was to come under pressure with, uh, for the leadership, it's still most, his most likely opponent is still Simon Coveney. So you never, you know, it doesn't, doesn't do any harm if you look around and see, well, Coveney is still there. Let's just take a little bit of the good out of him. So the Independent is attacking Michal Martin. The Examiner is saying that this undermines trust in the government. The Times is reporting that Coveney had to personally apologise to the Taoiseach. Eamon Ryan has also had to come out and say he had misgivings about it. Everyone has admitted, admitted that this was flawed and there were issues with this and it was not done in a transparent manner. And everyone in the government has agreed that the position is settled. Yeah, you have to imagine that for the Greens, above all... There hasn't been a whole lot of talk about the Greens in this, but for them, this must be really uncomfortable. And they're very much keeping the head down and say, oh, God, please don't ask us, please don't ask us. Because they are, actually, they are, of course, the party of morality and ethics in government. They're the party of transparency and openness and honesty and directness and down with parish pump politics and no to cronyism. And yet there they are. Yeah, I mean, when he was asked about this, Eamon Ryan said... Um, well, I don't think anyone was happy with this. <laughs> I think Catherine was. And then he went on to say that, you know, Catherine Spone has great experience and real expertise, and that doesn't really answer the question, though, does it? No. Was there nobody else with similar qualifications or even perhaps better qualifications? We should never know, at least not at the moment, because nobody was asked to interview. No one else was asked to submit a CV. I still haven't been able to figure out why they gave it to her. I, mean, I assume it was something to do with the campaign to get us onto the UN Security Council, or as a poem was involved with the Biden campaign when she went back to America after the uh, death of her wife. Maybe there was some connection there. Maybe she helped set something up. Maybe I assume there was a reason for this, as opposed to Catherine Zapone just going, you know, Simon, it would be great if you could give me a job. You'd hope so, wouldn't you? You'd hope there was some reasonable... In anything like this, Michael, my hope is that it is the action of a corrupt man. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. I often look, I've said before, I look at government decisions and I think to myself, I hope to God there was some good, solid, underhand reason for doing this. Because if this is just what they do in a, for day-to-day -day business, well, then we are truly, truly fucked. Oh, yeah. I mean, corruption, you know, the idea that it's corruption allows you to maintain the belief that at some level there is a competency there, as opposed to Simon Coveney going, God, you know it would be really good for Fine Gael electorally? Giving Catherine's opponent a job. Because also, <laughs> it, the implication would be as well, otherwise, that 
in the world of patronage and the world of jobs for the cigars, that there was no person out there, no former TD or senator, no retired judge, nobody down in the law library, no academic with connections to the party that they could find to give the job to. They had exhausted all of the people with connections to Fine Gael to give jobs to. So the only part they actually would we'll give it to Catherine because we've no one else to give it to. It seems to be unlikely. I'm sure there must be half a dozen people, at least half a dozen people out there thinking, I could have done that and I voted for you. Yeah, and then we've had Leo has come out and said it's it's not a very well-paid position because, you know, she's going to put in hundreds of hours. But if she's putting in hundreds of hours, Michael, think of the expense bill. It could be fantastic. And, you know, in all of this, let's not underestimate the worth of a nice title to people. Oh, yeah, we all like a nice title. Gets you invited to the nice parties. And it's also good for the CV if you want to go and look for another job with somebody else. I think the some of Leo's comments, they immediately made people look at Simon Coveney. But if you actually stop and think about what he said in parts, he said that the appointment as a poem was not cronyism because she had gone to Simon Coveney and said she would be great for the job. And so they gave it to her. And that <laughs> distracted everyone to look at Simon Coveney. But that sentence in isolation. Yeah. It sort of sounds like cronyism. Yeah, it kind of it kind of come close to the definition of it. Yeah, you know, she came, she said she'd be good at it. Well, we knew her, so we knew she'd obviously be great at it. So good, we didn't need to think of anyone else, so we gave it to her. We're only sitting thinking, do you know what? Why didn't we think of doing this before? Yeah, and yes, we worked with her, and we didn't tell, you know, the Taoiseach is from a different party who hadn't previously worked with her about it until it was presented to him. Um, actually, it doesn't seem like anyone in Fianna Fáil knew about this before it came to them. So only the party who worked with her previously. Which again, kind of feeds back into the uh, whole, kind of looks like cronyism though, doesn't it? And not even good cronyism. Yeah, and, and it, it has, as you can imagine, gone down with a lot of warmth and good feeling on the back benches of Fianna Fáil. And even further confirmed the opinion of many in the back benches of what a stellar job Mihal Martin is doing for the party. If not for Mihal, but certainly for the party. God, yeah, another fantastic score by Mihal. I mean, consider how easy it would have been to set up a, you know, a couple of people to look and recommend someone for this job and just rig it so Zapone would win. Zapone knows all of those people. Of course, all they had to do was tell the person whose job it was to find her that that was the person they, should, they were supposed to find. Yeah, that was, you know, this was exactly the person with the qualifications and it just turns out that that's Zapone. And you fill the committee with people who are friendly and know Zapone. And she wins and everyone is shocked by it. But at least you can then say, well, it was a committee decision. Yeah, but you wouldn't even do a committee. I mean, no, no. For the sake of this job, the size of it, you go to a senior, some senior civil servant in the Department of Foreign Affairs and say, listen, have a look around about who's available. This is the person we, by the way, we want and come back with a recommendation, which will sound very like this is the person who we want. A two to four pager, just some names, pull hers out, say she's recommended, boom, bada bing, we're done. Not an issue. That's how we'd normally do things. A list of three or four people saying all of, any of these people would do would do the job ex- ex- excellently. And then the minister at his discretion should choose. And the minister will choose Catherine. And away you go. And then arses are covered. 
Yeah, and I mean, the only reason you'd kind of see immediately not to do that is if you thought that that might get back to Finnafall and they might try and stop you. And you figure you can just bulldoze True Martin because he's basically made of paper and shadow. <laughs> made of shadow, yeah. They'd tax him if he was Italian. It is very much, it's a silly season story, but it's a silly season story. It seems to be catching a little bit of public interest. Although I don't know. That's the question, I suppose, really. Is it catching public interest or is it just catching the interest of politicians and more journalists? I think the problem they have here is from just talking to a couple of the Finnegale lads, there's a sense that you should keep your head down on this because it has the potential to take off. Yeah. And journalists don't have anything else to write about. And you were asking there, has it gotten true to the public, Michael? I don't think it matters if it's gotten true to the public. Most scandals don't. The press creates the impression it's gone true to the public. And if you keep publishing stories, like your Finnegale TD says 15,000, not a lot of money, uh, yeah, eventually that's going to hurt you. Eventually it, it, it will get through, it will get into the groundwater. Uh, uh, even if at the beginning, the first couple of days doesn't, by the time you're on the third or fourth day of the story, then people will start, oh, that's still going on. Oh, oh. She said, what? It's only there. Oh my God, how out of touch. I suppose the test will be, and I don't know if it hasn't happened already because I don't follow. It's To me, always great. even when it appears on, the, on Joe Duffy, then we'll know for certain. If somebody rings up on Joe Duffy and they spend half an hour giving out about it, then we'll know they're in trouble. So to close with, Michael, Bosnia and genocide, those two words that everyone wants to hear together again. It's not a good story, is it? And yet, I suppose most of us have thought, well, it was all pretty horrible and it was all very brutal, but, well... That's the old Europe, and we're in new Europe now, finally. Although people in Hungary and people in Poland seem to be trying to drag us back. Bad, bad people. But we thought that Yugoslavia, or the former Yugoslavia, had been sorted out. But no, apparently not. Um, there, I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, we're, we're, we're at the beginning of a position here, but it, there do seem to be noises coming out which suggest that Bosnia is going to dissolve now we saw what happened previously when Yugoslavia dissolved and it's it's a bit worrying that we seem to be back at that point again also the cause of the thing is I suppose disquieting I mean for people who haven't been paying attention um, there's a UN appointed high, high commissioner high representative Valentin Zenko who has imposed this ban which was intended to stop the glorification of war criminals. However, it will not surprise you, to Gary, that there is a diversity of opinion within Bosnia about precisely who was a war criminal. I think the first part of this is, I don't think most people would have known that the High Representative had the authority to simply amend Bosnia's criminal code. That strikes me as weird. But he did. He just amended the code because he said he thought it was necessary. Immediately, the country's prosecutor's office said it was going to initiate several cases under the new law, which made a denial of genocide a crime. Yeah. And, well, considering the particular history of Bosnia, or Bosnia-Herzegovina, as it was technically, that made a bit of a bit of an impact. People didn't like that. 
because it turns out lots of people there quite fond of some people who were thought to have conducted genocidal campaigns. It's also, I suppose, timing because it was last month that uh, Ratko Mladic, which is a name I sub- which may well be familiar to some listeners, what his sentence was confirmed uh, uh, in The Hague uh, as being guilty of genocide. However, there are ethnic Serb leaders in Bosnia who uh, still consider Mr. Vladic as a, a, a hero, and Mr. Vladic as a hero. And there are, in fact, posters around the Serbian parts of the ethnic Serbian parts of Bosnia, where there are posters of him in his uniform saluting and looking uh, firm and heroic. And you can imagine that doesn't go down very well in Muslim, Muslim Bosnian parts of Bosnia, in mean, the Croatian Bos- parts of Bosnia. Um, he was responsible, well, he was the leader responsible for the, was regarded as the worst atrocity of the war, where he had some people under his control killed around 8,000 uh, captive Bosnian uh, men and boys. I, was that in, that was in Srebrenica, wasn't it? Srebrenica would have been the worst of the, um, should we say, incidents that are pointed to. That was the, the, the worst and the most notorious of them. Where, as I say, they, they just slaughtered. They were prisoners. Bosnian Muslims are also sometimes called Bosniak um, listeners. And they, they just slaughtered 8,000 of them. Um, it, was, it was horrible. It's, I, was, I can't get the hang of the fact that the UN rep was in a position to do this. It's actually a very interesting situation because we... Bosnia, we kind of just forget about Bosnia entirely. When you look at how Bosnia is set up, it's kind of like Northern Ireland in certain respects. It's very clearly an artificial construct designed to stop these people slaughtering each other. Like they have a tripartite presidency. So there's a president from each of the ethnic groups. But because of the way Bosnia came together, you had under what were called the, the Bon powers, the UN had certain abilities that the high uh, representative had. So this guy waits until he is a couple of days away from leaving the post and then brings in this move. And it seems like he was waiting for Ratko's, um, the final verdict, but also partially because the Serb member of the presidency has um, called Ratko, um, I think it was a living legend. Yes. So... The high representative comes out, makes this vague point that certain politicians have pushed him towards this and that this is for the best. But internally, it's created chaos because even the people who supported this move are now pointing out that, well, this is this is a democracy and we didn't choose this. This is something you just did. Some people are very unhappy about this. And it's not a country held together with a lot. No, the the rationalisation that he gives for taking this decision now in the mouth of his, the end of his term is that, I'm quoting here from the BBC, he says, I gave local politicians the chance to adopt a genocide denial law on their own. That would have been best, but four or five efforts have failed. In the last 10 years, there was no possibility to have such a law on genocide denial. That's a bit like the comment of a, a monarch over a, a badly functioning parliament, isn't it? Well, I gave them the chance to do it, but they wouldn't do it, so I'm going to do it myself. 
And I don't know if that's the way to do it. It, it actually reminds me of the American approach to democracy in Iraq. When they came in and they're like, well, this is the way things should be. So we're going to impose it on people. But the underlying structures that would have held the democracy up weren't really functioning. So they built it and then it just immediately starts teetering around the place and creating problems. And, you know, it may work out in the end, but you're trying to impose something on a population that has to decide what it wants itself. Because if you just come in and tell them, well, maybe that's not what they want or maybe that's not what they're ready for. Or maybe it causes massive blowback because people, you know, who you need to stay in government because, well, the last time that it was decided that government wasn't working in this region, it didn't end terribly well. Yeah. And so you, you just put in something that pisses them off massively. So we'll, we'll see. To me, this really just seems like I had good intentions. I had good intentions, and they should have done it, and they didn't, so I did it for them, and I'm sure it's going to work out fine. Yeah, he seems to be fairly relaxed about the whole thing. He says, ah, it's, there's posters, a bit of graffiti around, but in time, it'll just go away. Now, and maybe it will, and I hope it does. I just, I can't help remembering that the Bosnians still celebrate and cherish the, the what was the, the Battle of Kosovo? which was when the Serbs went up against the Ottoman army. I, I think they were actually defeated, but defeated in, in, such a, in, in such a manner as it stopped the Ottoman advance. And I don't, I, I don't remember the date offhand, but I think it was in the 14th century, Gary. As a nation, the Irish, I think, can understand that kind of thing where things which happened a very, very long time ago still figure strongly in the popular imagination. And the idea that, oh, these people will just forget, it'll blow away, it'll be gone. Now, maybe it will. And maybe the stuff that's been done with Mladic and the rhetoric around him is simply local Serbian politicians playing a particular form of politics to speak to a constituency to get themselves elected right now but actually underneath it all it's nothing more than a lot of hot air and political rhetoric i i think the other part of this problem is that the law covers genocide denial but it also covers the glorification of war criminals yeah and a lot of people who would be considered war criminals are also considered folk heroes from of certain parts of the population of bosnia I mean, you've already had, um, so the Bosnian Serb member of the, of the country's presidency is a guy called Dodik. Dodik has already called for the breaking up of the country, peacefully, wants to cut it apart. He immediately came out after this and said that um, it was time for all Bosnian Serbs to, you know, come and fight for the survival of the Republic. Mm. Which is maybe not the language you want the Serbian, you know, the Bosnian Serb community to start going into right now. Because again, Michael, we've kind of seen this one before. We have, but you see, how do you how do you argue if you're going to be consistent, and coherent on the basis of what you've done in the past? How do you say to the Republika Srpska, which is one of the the Serbian autonomous region within Bosnia, that actually you have to stay in Bosnia. You don't have the right of self-determination 
and if you want to join in with the Serbian Republic or the Republic of Serbia the, to create a grand Serbia that you should be able, if we look back on the attitude to say the independence of Kosovo and granting particular special rights the autonomy for autonomy to the Albanians in Kosovo they seem to be because it was Albanians against Serbs, the Serbs were the bad guys, and we had we had firmly established in the narrative that Serbs were the bad guys, therefore the Albanians had to be the good guys. We ended up treating Kosovo in a way which at the time it seemed to me to be unwise. At what point do you say you don't get the right to to secede? At what point do we have to do we say, or can we say coherently or consistently, that this line in, that we have drawn on the political map is fixed and permanent and forever? You can say whatever you want. How do you actually enforce it? Well, I suppose that's ultimate, that's the question, isn't it? About all all forms of political entity, it's that, and it's not a, it's not really a question you ever want to have answered which is at what point do you say that this is no longer a tenable situation because the group of people in, in that particular geographical location have decided that they are willing to go to this point of violence to actually justify their or to to vindicate what they 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 claim to be their political rights i, I remember years ago uh, talking to a professor of criminal criminology in, in italy he's talking about the nature of the mafia and he said the thing about the mafia wasn't that they they used violence, made them do business a particular way, or rather made people do the business with them in a particular way. It was but the fact that everybody knew that they had a willingness and a capacity to use violence if it, if that was what was going to be needed. And if you get a, most populations in the world, certainly in the developed world, you know that pretty well. You can do anything to them, and they won't get to the point, or will take a very long time for them to get to the point where they will actually start shooting. But what if you have a population which is willing to do that? At that point, it seems to me, you can have all the fine discussions political about political theory and political economy you like, but you're still left with the fact that you have a group of people in this place and they're shooting. And how can you how can you police? How can you rule a group of people who do not want to be ruled? Unless you're going to keep them in a state of permanent coercion. And how do you have a state like that? Or do you do this on the basis that, well, we'll just keep them down and eventually it'll go away? Well, they tried that actually in this country at different times over fairly extended periods of time. And every time they took the heel off, somebody would pop up again and start shooting. Here's, here's an exact quote from Dodik immediately after this decision happened. And this is as reported by Euronews. This is a key moment for Serb people to either survive or to quickly lose our chance at existing in this part of the world. That's not great rhetoric for that region. It is also the rhetoric of the paranoid. Isn't it? I mean, he's, he's deliberately framing the question as an existential crisis, an existential threat. And I don't think, if we were going to try and be fair and rational about it, that it is actually the case at all that the current situation, or indeed the actions 
of uh, the UN representative represents something which could be characterized as an existential threat to the Serbian population of Bosnia. No, I've been reading through some of the press conferences and statements and things uh, from him. And obviously this is translated, so you can lose quite a lot in that. But there is very much a theme of we are, you know, our history, our people are under attack here. And that's been pretty consistent. And a UN representative looked at that and went, ah, sure, we'll throw this law at them. I kind of, like, it, it's, it kind of has that feeling of hate speech laws of, well, look, if we make it illegal, it'll stop. Yes, there is a bizarre liberal optimism in the capacity of the state to use rules, regulations, shall we say even rationality, to to mould or to coerce people into behaving in a certain way. He He's dealing with somebody who's working outside of that paradigm. He's working in a He's working in as I, what I would regard as a fundamentally paranoid paradigm. But Gary, the history of the 20th century in Europe is full of people using exactly that language to con- with consequences that were not good for the, themselves or for the people around them. Like normally it's a sort of, well, if we do this, people will you know respect the law because you know people won't like to break the law. In this particular case, it's, uh, and if we do this, the Bosnian Serbs will respect the law because they would never go outside it. I, it, just, it just, from a very, very distant point over here, looking at a com- at a, what is, I don't doubt, a mixed up, complicated, difficult situation where there are feelings that run very deep with memories that are still fresh. This feels like somebody who rather unthinkingly just picked up a can of paraffin and threw it on a fire which wasn't really necessarily burning that bright but this has really helped it along. I mean it's difficult looking at the region to tell what is rhetoric and what is someone prepared to go further on this or willing to start a dialogue that is going to go further on this and it could nothing could come of it it could simply go nowhere but it's a volatile region and this just seems like something very well-meaning, but that you know maybe you might want to have consider a little bit more. I just wonder. I don't know if 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 you saw anything because I, I I didn't see anything. You know that part of the law which is against uh, glorification of war criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it I didn't see anything which specified a time limit to that. Or did it say that there were that it was only a reference to people who are still living? I'm just wondering this because we're talking here about the Serbs, right? Mm-hmm. But as if you asked any Serb, they would be very quick to tell you the Croatian uh, population of Yugoslavia was involved with a group in the period in the 1940s, which was responsible for some of the most awful crimes against principally the Orthodox Serbian community, but others, and there, and figured amongst his ranks many, many people who would be war criminals. But people that I suspect today are also considered to be heroes amongst the Croatian community. The old, the Ustache, though, I mean, the Ustache still today figures as an insult for Serbs, much like the word Nazi would be to somebody in other countries in Middle Europe. 
And there's no doubt the Eustache did do horrendous, horrible things. I haven't actually seen the order that was passed down by the High Representative. I know that the the Bosnian Parliament had been considering a um, a law on this, but that law was looking um, at Srebrenica particularly, from what I understand. So I'm not sure if the High Representative's order relates to that and war crimes related to that and that campaign or as a broader um, brush. It just occurs to me that if that were to be, if it were a broader kind of application, then the fact that you might have people saying, well, actually, sorry, we're going to take a case because the, the Croats are doing this, that would just yet more fun for the in the fair. Actually, when, the, when that law went to Bosnia's parliament, it was the Serbs and the uh, Croats who voted against it. Perhaps unsurprisingly. Anyway, we, we hope, I suppose, Gary, to hear nothing in future about this. But we shall see. That is probably the best outcome with the Balkans, generally. No news is good news. No news is very good news. Anyway, we shall be back on Sunday, God willing, and as long as we're not washed away by the thunder and lightning. But until then, stay safe. All the best. <laughs>